reading tonight is from James five thirteen through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if any has... And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The power of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit." The word of the Lord. Well, we are coming near the end of our uh, Lenten healing series. Uh, two more weeks to go tonight and uh, next Sunday. And so far, what we've been doing is looking at healing in the Gospels. And we've spent five weeks looking at different healing uh, stories in the Gospels. And I suspect almost every Christian, if not every Christian, would agree that Jesus healed and that the disciples, uh, the apostles, healed. Well, where it gets a little tricky is, but what about us? Um, What is the role of healing for normal, ordinary Christians in normal, ordinary churches? Well, That is a question that uh, I want to kind of turn to tonight briefly. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Acts 4, 29 to 31. If you don't, I'll just read it. This is the early church at prayer. And now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Okay, so that is one of the first recorded prayers of the early church. And what they're saying is, Lord, would you help me preach the word of God? And would you, would you accompany the preaching of the word of God with signs and wonders, with miracles like healing? And so one of the things you have to figure out as a, as a Christian is, well, does that still apply today? Does that fit us, or is that just for then? And I've been telling you a little bit of my story here, so I won't have to go over it again. But when I first entered a seminary in the ministry, this was a very hot topic. And one of the reasons was because a number of faith healers who had been on television had been exposed as uh, faking healings for their own financial gain. And that became quite a scandal, and that uh, greatly uh, shamed anything to do with healing, and it became kind of a standing joke. If you would ever talk about healing, someone would mention someone on TV and laugh, and we'd all agree that was a bad thing. Uh, A mentor of mine, I was confused about this, gave me a book. It was by a great theologian, B.B. Warfield, 1910, Princeton uh, Theological Seminary, one of the great Presbyterian theologians ever. And he wrote a book called Counterfeit Miracles. And in just a brilliant argument, he laid out why the miraculous gifts, the sign gifts, had all ceased with the death of the last apostle. And that 
That, plus all the chaos with the guys on TV, uh, seemed like good enough for me. Well, uh, when I kind of got out into ministry and started uh, banging into some things, and uh, books started showing up on my desk. And uh, as you probably figured out by now, my testimony is when I usually change something, it usually begins with a book or an idea or uh, someone arguing from a biblical passage. And then it moves into experience. So uh, one of the first books was Jonathan Edwards' uh, Surprising, A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God. And that was this brilliant theological assessment of the First Great Awakening. And essentially he says, miracles are for today, but be careful they can be counterfeited. And then came D. Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Joy Unspeakable. Uh, He was a modern-day Puritan, as far as a charismatic as you could ever get. And yet in that book, he argued that these kind of gifts were for the gospel today. And then that was followed by Jack Deere's Surprised by the Power of the Spirit. Jack Deere was a seminary professor at a, at a seminary that taught that none of these gifts could occur today. He experienced uh, the Holy Spirit in a powerful way at a John Wimber conference and uh, quit his job and wrote this book on why he believed in this. Two more. Wayne Grudem, professor at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, PhD from Oxford, wrote a book on why the supernatural gift of prophecy was for today. Finally, uh, John Piper, a famous pastor, uh, he wrote uh, a sermon on why he had come to reject cessationism. So all of this was kind of swirling around in, in my journey, in my mind, and I was preaching through 1 Corinthians, and we got to the passage in chapter 12 about these gifts. And, and I was preparing to teach the, uh, the, the, the seven principles that I learned in seminary about why these gifts could never happen today. And I'll, I'll never forget, I was sitting in a cabin, and I had books all over the desk, and, and one by one I realized none of these arguments are found in Scripture. And the one thing I learned in, in seminary, not one thing, of many things I learned in seminary, <laughs> it was... When Scripture disagrees with the books, go with Scripture. That Scripture has got to be your ultimate authority. And so with fear and trepidation, I, I realized, you know, I think these could be for today. And one of the reasons why was what we're going to talk about tonight. There are two passages in the New Testament that directly tell or describe Christians and churches to pray for healing and to pray for miracles. Not apostles, just normal Christians. And this is one of them in James chapter 5, verses 13 to 18. And this is a book written in verse 1 of the first chapter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And that was code language for Christians all over the empire. So this is a general epistle. It's for a specific, not for a specific situation, but general principles for all times and all places. Now, it's also written kind of like the book of Proverbs in that he states general principles that then uh, kind of apply to broad themes in the Christian life, just like the book of Proverbs. So let's just see what it says here. And by the way, I would nominate this one passage as the single most disobeyed passage in the entire Bible by Christians today. So when I'm done with it, I want you to ask yourself, Will you ever do what this asks? And if not, why not? Okay? So let's not just kind of do a heady uh, seminary lecture here and go hrump, hrump, and go have dinner. 
I want to know by the end of the night whether or not you'll do this. And if you won't do it, why won't you do it? Okay? All right, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Christian life is filled with joy and suffering. The rest of the passage tells us what to do when we suffer. If anyone among you sick, is anyone among you sick? The Greek word uh, is not the normal word for sickness. It's a broader word for general affliction and suffering. So he's talking here about all sorts of kinds of suffering. And he says, when this happens, let him call for the elders of the church. Now, the first thing I want us to see here is that the burden is put on the sick person to call and ask for prayer, to say, I am sick and I need help. Now, the Greek word for elder just means mature. This was the year 40, 50 AD. We're not talking about a really richly organized church culture yet. He's just saying, you're in a house church. There are spiritually mature people around you. When you are sick, go to them, call for them, and ask them to pray for you. So the first thing that happens in any kind of a faith community that develops a culture of faith is we develop a culture of confession, a culture of vulnerability, a culture of humility, where when I have a need, I ask for help. I say, you know, I've got this thing. I've been going to the doctors. I'm not sure what it is. I'm still suffering. I've still got some pain. Would you pray for me? Okay. My question to you is a question to me. Would you do that? Would you ask? I know it's hard. I'm not sure why it's hard, but it's hard. I went to healing prayer. I put on my, uh, on my calendar that I would go to healing prayer two Monday nights ago because I've got this little thing in my back that won't go away. So I get in there, and I, the thing's been on my calendar for a month, and I sit down there and some other people in the room, and I say to myself, you know, other people are suffering more here than I am. I don't really think I should do this. And so an hour goes by and I never go up and ask anybody to pray for me. I, after studying this text, would say that's getting real close to sin if it's not sin. Because if you're my friend and I have a need and I don't share it with you, I rob you of the opportunity to care for me. Now, I know all the theological problems. I know sometimes God doesn't answer. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I know this, though. Every time I've gone to a friend and said, I'm suffering, would you pray for me? Regardless of the answer, I felt loved. And I felt connected with. Regardless of the answer. And so somebody said, what do you want to happen tonight? I said, I'd love to see us develop a culture of faith. And then as we talked a little before, you know what I think I'd like to see happen even more than that before that? I'd like to see a culture of confession in our church. A culture of humility and vulnerability where I will actually say to my brother and sister, and I know it doesn't have to be up here. It doesn't have to be a Monday night. It's got to be somewhere with your people that I will say, I need help. Pray for me. So I want to ask you, will you do that? I need help. 
Pray for me. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, oil was a symbol in the ancient world for the Holy Spirit. That's one of the reasons why they anointed. But it was more than that. In Mark 6.13, Jesus sends the disciples out. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now, it's true oil is a symbol of the Spirit. But can you imagine Jesus is preparing these guys for moral combat. They're scared to death. He's thrusting thrusting them out into the battlefield. Do you think he would say, and by the way, when you are on the right in the face of danger, here's a neat symbol. No, there's more to it than that. I don't know what. But there's more to it than that. Because God works through stuff. God is an incarnational God. And so that's why he says, anoint with oil, lay hands on one another with oil, symbol of the Spirit, because my healing power flows through stuff. It flows through blood inside you and tendon and flesh. It flows through stuff. Touch each other. That's how I work. Then he says, do all of this in the name of the Lord. That's always important to to remember whenever we pray for sickness, that we're doing it in the name of the Lord, according to the authority of the Lord, according to the sovereignty of the Lord. This is not something we're doing for our own gain, to give ourselves glory, to get a rush. Ultimately, it's the Lord's business what happens in the prayer. It's always important to remember that. Now, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Now, remember, these are like Proverbs. They're general statements of biblical truths. Of course there are exceptions. James knew that. Jesus knew that. Everybody understands that when we pray for healing, we aren't always answered. We've talked about that several times in the series. But this is a general principle that when you have faith and when you are a part of a community of faith, the Holy Spirit is activated and flows more freely. There's some connection between faith and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, how do you awaken faith? Because the last thing you want to do is dump on somebody who's struggling with faith and say the reason why your life stinks is because you don't have enough faith. Well, that's the good news of the gospel. No. This is a communal text. We think of it too individually. This is not about just you. Because a lot of times, I don't have faith. I need to be a part of a community that has faith. I need to be a part of other other people that believe that God can move in my heart and life. How do you awaken that in a community? I think it has something to do with your glasses. Put them on, Jane. Your glasses are the worldview through which you see life. And most of us who've grown up in the West see life through a Western, rationalist, secular, materialist worldview. We've been trained in it all the way up to our last year of education. It's not bad. There's many wonderful things about it. But one of the most difficult things about it is that it rules out anything supernatural. And so you don't see the Bible for what the Bible really is. You see it in an entirely different way. 
this was one of the first things that started to kind of come undone for me early in my ministry. And it happened when I, when I, I either heard a missionary speak or I read a missionary article called The Excluded Middle. And one of the things that uh, the missionary was talking about is he'd gone out in the mission field and he was trying to explain the gospel the way he'd learned it in seminary, but the people on the mission field could never understand it. Because in their world, there was God and spirit, and it was all mixed up together. In his world, there was God and there was people. And there was this big gap between the two. And so you might have faith and miracles and religion up here. You have people and life down here. You didn't expect up here to come into down here. And so he wrote a famous article. It's called The Excluded Middle. His name was D. Edmund Hebert. And the whole point was that if you, his ministry didn't start to work until he realized he was wearing the glasses of a Western materialist worldview in his mission work, and he couldn't see anything that was going on all around him. And he concluded that the worldview of the Bible was more like the people that he was trying to reach. So one of the things, if we want to become a culture of faith, we've already seen it starts with confession, with humility, with asking for help. One of the things that we also have to start exploring is what pair of glasses am I reading the Bible with? Am I reading the Bible open to what the Bible really says about how life works, or am I taking... Western, rationalistic, secularistic, materialistic goggles, putting them on, looking at the Bible, and then just washing away anything that doesn't fit my paradigm. How do paradigms change? Another major book in my journey, and I won't do this to you every week, but you asked, you didn't ask, but I'm going to tell you anyway. It was Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Really boring book, very important. He's the one that developed the the idea of paradigm shift. And it's a history of all the major shifts in science up to the present. And his point was, is that the whole scientific community shares certain beliefs and assumptions. Yeah, we all think the world's flat. And then usually somebody on the outside says, huh, maybe it's not. Then the people who have the power kill the person on the outside. After a few generations... There's enough people on the outside that challenge the assumptions that the assumptions flip and a whole new paradigm or worldview comes into into action. That's what needs to happen for you. That's what needs to happen for me. We have bought into a Western materialist, secularist worldview, and the more degrees you have after high school, the more you've been trained in it. And we need new glasses. Now, I'd say there's two ways that the paradigm shift happens. One is you actually change your theology, and and you kind of go where we're going tonight. You say, you know, I don't get this, but I think God can really do this. The second thing, usually it goes like this, is that you begin to experience something that doesn't fit your old paradigm. And at first you reject it, and then you begin to see the new way. For me, it was a haunted house. And I may have told this story, but I'm getting older, so you've got to put up with that. It's going to happen again. So this was years ago. A friend of mine says, my house is haunted. Can you come over and go pray? And I, I pulled out all my books on haunted houses. No, I have, I have no books on haunted houses. It's true stories here in Knoxville. And uh, I didn't know better, so I said, sure. So I go over there, and, and, and I said, sit down, Miss So-and-so. And she says, uh, she says every night... Uh, a dark presence visits uh, 
uh, my bedroom. So we start to pray, walk through the house. I walk in, I see her father's picture, and uh, ask her about the father. The father's been dead many years. Immediately I felt something in my spirit about the picture. I go on, we pray, I sit down, I say, tell me about your father. After a while she says, actually, it's my dad that visits me every night. I've asked him to, and we have a real sweet relationship, and I'd never want him to go. Well, that wasn't her dad. That was another kind of spirit. The second she says that, the second she acknowledges that, the clock starts going dong, 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 dong. This look of terror goes across her face. And I'm a professional. I picked it up, and I said, lady, uh, ma'am, why are you so afraid? She said, that clock has never rung. At the end of the night, we prayed, the house experienced peace, they experienced peace, never had trouble with it again. My worldview started to shift because I could see that there was another part of reality that was going on here. I could share many of these, just one more. I'm in a bus in Vietnam, back way back into the jungles. The bus, uh, the tour guide a lovely Christian man, uh, just sort of in passing, he's talking about this tribe and this tribe and this tribe, and he says, that tribe's all come to Christ. We said, why? He said, well, the witch doctor died, and they raised him from the dead, and everybody believed after the night. And then he went on to, yeah, and that's a fruit tree, and you know, I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> so, now, I don't know, could have been doing it for the tourists. I doubt it. This was not that kind of trip. My paradigm started to shift. I saw it happen recently. One of you went to somebody else, a friend for prayer. The prayer read your mail. Started to tell you things that only God would know. You came back to me. You were somewhat angry. You said, I told you that in confidence. Did you tell him everything that I told you? I said, I haven't talked with him at all about it. And they're like that. You mean the God of heaven knows me so well and loves me so well that he would reveal secrets to a friend so that they could care for me? then the paradigm starts to shift. So, when the paradigm starts to shift, we need to share a little bit of story about what's happening in our lives. And so, just earlier tonight, Paige mentioned that something happened on vacation, and I said, you want to share it tonight? So, Paige, tell us a quick story here about your paradigm shift. And welcome back. (laughs) Is this on? So Eugene Peterson says that our greatest act of hospitality is sharing our story. And so I'm going to share, share mine. Um, about a week ago or more, the Lord really impressed on me this um, thing in the medical and veterinarian communities that when you are practicing medicine, you see one, you do one, and then you teach one. And he told me that twice about a week ago. And um, last Sunday, my husband was happened to be over at Paul Hassel's house. <laughs> and uh, Alex Bell was there, and they asked to pray for him, and they prayed for a hernia he'd had for 20 years um, that has given him chronic pain. And so they prayed for him, very simple prayer. There were seven kids running around the house. It's crazy, chaotic. But the Lord met him there. And two days later, after it started pulsing, instead of burning, he said it was less than half the size, and it was no pain anymore. And uh, I'm married to an engineer, very analytical. This did not make sense to him at all. 
Um, and then a, a day or two ago, I got a cold, a really bad cold, lost my voice. And I did not ask for prayer, but my husband came to me and said, can I pray for you? Something he never does. And of course I said yes. And so he laid his hand on my shoulder and prayed a very simple prayer. And I could feel my sinuses drawing up in my head and my, almost my tongue through the roof of my na- mouth. And um, my voice came back and my cold is gone after a day and a half. And that just doesn't happen to me. So I know that the that was the Lord providing healing in my life. And then a few days, as we were leaving vacation, we were, we were at a Kroger headed out, and I saw a man in a wheelchair. And the Lord impressed on me so strongly. He was in front of me in the checkout line that I needed to pray for him. And I didn't. And he told me like three times, you need to pray for him, pray for him. And I ignored that. And Doug asked, why? Why don't we respond to that? And my fear was... I could do more damage than good. What if nothing happens? As if the outcome was in my control. I had this idea that if I prayed for him and nothing happened, that somehow I could cause more damage. And that was just a lie that I was believing. That see one, do one, teach one. I was at the teach one, and I failed. But David Leach told me tonight, he said, you know what? You didn't fail. You heard the Lord. (laughs) You heard him prompting you to pray for somebody. And he's not, um, he's not giving up on you. So um, I encourage you to tell your stories of healing, to encourage each other, to build each other's faith up. Thank you. All right, let's finish this up. Chapter 5, verse 16. And if he has committed sins, he will be Forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, as we said last week, obviously, everyone who remains sick, it's not because of their sin. We've talked about that. These are proverbs. They're general principles. And here's the general principle. If you are spiritually healthy, you are more likely to be physically healthy. That's the spiritual principle. Your body and your soul are connected. If your soul is right with God, it will help your body heal. That's the principle. Now, what what I want us to just kind of think about here is it says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. This is a verse about community again. And again, it's this culture of humility. It's this culture of confession It's saying that this is the kind of community where God's healing power flows more freely when we are deeply embedded in relationships, we share what we're struggling with, we confess our sins, the sin is forgiven. When that happens, we are in a better place to experience God's healing power flowing through us. That's what I think this verse is about. Um, So I'll ask you again, will you do it? We're Bible people. Will you do it? When you're sick, will you call somebody to pray? If there's something you're struggling with, will you confess it to one other person?
I just sense a lot of us are saying, hell no. I mean, I'm really sensing that. See, I know we get all complicated and with theologies of healing and faith and all this stuff. What does this mean? What does that mean? This is as simple as it gets. When you're struggling, tell it to a brother or sister. That's as simple as it gets. It's the best thing for your spiritual and physical health. Will you do it? Will you do it? Well, then, he ends with another interesting phrase, and he says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, what does that mean? Is there some connection with my own personal walk with God and the capacity through which God's Spirit flows through me? It sure looks like it. Now, I know... But what about, but what about, what about, we're not saying it's, it's a quid pro quo relationship. It's not saying that you have to be like at a C plus to, to, to heal a sore back and a B plus to heal, you know, MS. And, you know, come on. We know we're not saying that, right? But it makes sense, doesn't it? If this is about the power of the divine flowing through me and throwing into you, if this is about a Trinitarian community where we're all tapped into the Godhead and his plan is for the power of God to flow back and forth through each other, if something is clogging my pipe, if something is blocking, if something is hidden, if something is misaligned, if something is stuck, the power won't flow as smoothly. So we need to confess our sins to one another so that the power can flow. Let's pray.